0: Uh, today we are starting our uh, series a new series through the fall. Uh, every fall, we come back to the Old Testament and we do that on purpose as part of our normal rhythm of walking through the scriptures together um, in the once we turn the corner into the new year we we stay in the New Testament and in the Gospels around the beginning of the new year, walking through the life of Jesus as we make our way towards um, the, the towards his crucifixion and towards his resurrection, uh, but in the fall we want to root ourselves in the Old Testament to remind ourselves that we are a part of this large story. Should I keep going? Take like, can you take two steps back? Yes, no problem. What outside churches like? <laughs> All right. Is that good? Is that better? Alright, Stephen's the man. Thank you, Stephen. He is the man. Alright, so, uh, so we're rooting ourselves back in the Old Testament again. This, this normal rhythm. And we think about that like the rings of a tree. Okay, if you look at the, at the rings on the inside of a tree, you'll notice that year by year you can mark the growth of a tree by those rings. It's the same exact pattern, but it gets larger each time right and so you can mark that progress of roots going deeper of the branches reaching further and yet it's that same pattern over and over again it's not a rut of just stuck in this circle but there's this visible growth that is happening, that as the roots are going deeper, those rings are going wider, and the, the branches are reaching further, okay? So that's how we think about our journey through the scriptures year by year. We follow this same pattern, but it's not designed to be a rut that we're stuck in, but instead it's like the rings of an oak, and we're trying to grow deeper and reach further. Uh, as we are going through that process year by year. So we want to stay like like the, the image of Psalm chapter 1, like a tree planted by the streams of water, bearing fruit in season. That's who we want to be in this discipleship journey, in this discipleship relationship with Jesus. And so that's where we're going to be over the next several weeks, is walking through the Old Testament. Uh, the framework for this is we're, we're going to walk through the five core covenants of the Old Testament story. and So as you look back through the Old Testament story, uh, at times the, the Old Testament and also the Bible as a whole can be confusing for us to get our minds around. And so this is designed not just to help us through this series, but to help us through our entire lives. To give us a framework for understanding the arc of the Scripture story, that for the rest of your life, as you're studying the Scriptures, you can watch these stories fall into place according to these five core covenants. So that's what we're trying to uh, trying to do here. the The Bible is is a library of books. Really, we call it a book, uh, and it is a unified book, but really, it's a library of sixty six books written by somewhere around 40 authors over the course of more than a thousand years of putting this book together. Three different languages, uh, two testaments, and yet it's telling one core story. The whole thing is pointing to one core story. And so that's what we're trying to, to root ourselves in as a congregation and root each other And I want to give a shout out real quick to my Old Testament professor from seminary. Her name is Dr. Sandra Richter. And uh, Justin and I had a class with her about 15 years ago. That blew our minds and uh, reshaped the way that we have engaged with Scripture ever since. She's continued to be uh, an influence and a person that that I go to uh, for this kind of insight. And she repeatedly talks about the way that we can see this story according to these five core covenants. And one of her challenges to every person who's going through her seminary classes, who plans to teach the scriptures in some way, is she says over and over again to them, tell the story, tell it well. Tell the story, tell it well. And there's so much hope in this sense that we are finding ourselves in this larger story. It's human nature to want to connect to a story. Uh, you find this across cultures and across time, the importance of storytelling in so many different cultures to give us insight, to give us meaning for our lives, to give us a sense of identity, to help us try to make sense of the world that we are in. And in our culture, one of the things that we find about storytelling is that some of the stories that seem to connect the most to us are stories that take us into different worlds, right? Maybe it's when we're little kids and we connect to that and it's like opens up the imagination or maybe we stay that way through the rest of our lives. Lord of the Rings fans unite, okay? Uh, Star Wars nerds, I'm in that camp too, okay? Uh, And those kinds of stories... They they try to take us into different worlds and open up the imagination by taking us into different worlds. And they tap into some kind of desire that we have to escape the story that we're in and to find a better story to fall into, right? Some of them even go the next step, like I'm going to go ahead and call out Chronicles of Narnia here because that's another one that I'm nerdy about, okay? Or Harry Potter for the Harry Potter fans. In both of those kinds of stories, you have this moment of kids who are going from the world that they're in, and they find this escape into another world, and they're inviting us into that process, right? So it's not just like the Lord of the Rings, where we have to do that ourselves, but in Narnia, it's like we're one of the kids who finds the wardrobe, and finds this entry into another world. Or we're with Harry Potter, and we're at platform nine and three quarters, and we're like, okay, we're, we're going for this, okay? And we enter into another world. There's this deep ache, and longing in us to be a part of a story that matters. Scripture taps into this. This ancient story taps into that, but on a different kind of level. It doesn't invite us to leave this world, to escape this world, and to go into a better story. Instead, it flips that whole thing on its head. And it says, this story is breaking into your world. It's not asking you to leave this world and to go into this book. No, it's saying this book is breaking out into this world. And as a matter of fact, if we look all the way back to Genesis 1, we find that it's our world that is breaking out of this story. The grand narrative of God's engagement with humanity. Salvation history through the course of human life history. That's where we're going to be together as we look at these five core covenants. So each week we're going to rehearse these covenants again uh, as a way of getting this embedded in us and stepping into this story, realizing really the story that we've always been a part of. So the first covenant that we're going to look at is Adam and Eve and the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1. The second covenant core covenant of the old testament is the story of noah that starts in genesis chapter 6 the third core covenant is the story of abraham also found in the book of genesis the fourth core covenant is the story of moses and the fifth core covenant is the story of david all right so i'm going to ask you to do something that might feel a little bit cheesy but i'm going to ask you to rehearse that with me okay So as I say it, then you hold up your hand and go through it too, okay? So I'll say it and then you repeat it, all right? Number one, Adam and Eve. Eve. Number two, Noah. Number three, Abraham. Abraham. Number Number four, Moses. Number five, David. All right, I'm going to make you do that every week, okay? So let's, let's get ready for that engagement. This forms that framework for us to see this scripture story. And one of the things that we're going to see every single week is the way that Jesus is not just another one of these stories, but you see the thread of Jesus running through every single one you see the flickers and the foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to accomplish. The spoiler alert of each of these covenants is that all five of the people and the figures, the representatives that we just talked about, they all fail in their keeping of the covenant that God makes with them. Every one of them fails. Every single one. The beauty is that Jesus is faithful at the very point where everyone else fails. And he steps in and he fulfills that covenant relationship in the way that humanity was never able to do. So that's what we're going to be exploring together. Real quick, what what do we mean when we say covenant? That's a bit of an odd word in our culture and in our language, but it was just a part of their culture. Okay, a part of the Jewish culture of this day. Uh, So they they knew what that meant automatically when that word gets used. And it's it's a bit of an archaic word maybe for us. But basically it just means an agreement. An agreement uh, that two parties enter into and both of the parties say, okay, I have responsibilities in this. I'm going to do this and you're going to do that. And we agree on this partnership and we agree on this agreement. It's like if you have a mortgage, okay, you have entered into that. You signed some papers that said I'm going to do this and you're going to do this. If you are employed at all, then you have entered into this kind of agreement. Uh, If you're a university student, you had to sign some things in order for them to accept you in and also they made some promises to you in that process as well. You've entered into a business deal at all or or have been a part of a marriage all of these are commitments that get made and all of them on a legal level and it's very similar to what we're talking about here with this covenant language and covenant imagery that we see throughout the scriptures it is a partnership first of all and that seems weird to us Because when we think about partnership, we think about maybe this equality. And we're certainly not saying that we are equal to God in any way at all. But it does show us the love and the grace of Jesus and of God Himself to enter into a covenant with us in that way, to descend in that kind of way towards us. And to say, I am inviting you into a partnership with me, And so from the very beginning, we get this grounding of grace in our relationship with God. We know instinctively that that's not something that we deserve or could earn, but that He is giving to us out of His overflow of grace. It's a grounding of grace. So He invites us into this partnership, and He says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And here's how that's going to look. You're going to embody my character. You're going to embody my way of being in this world. And you're going to be a representative to this world of who I am. And that's the basis of that. And what's God's part in this? He's going to just be himself. He's going to be himself and and move out of that grounding of grace and this partnership that we have entered into with him. He will be faithful to us every single step of the way. And the way that he expresses this partnership throughout the scripture story is that he chooses a representative. So instead of just saying, he is making a partnership with all of the people, but he chooses a person out of that group to be a representative of the larger body. And he makes this covenant with one representative. So he chooses a person to be that on behalf of the rest of humanity. We have to understand, though, when he's making these promises to these representatives and to these individual people, it's not a promise that's just for them, and it's not just a promise that is to them. It is a promise that is through them, to the larger scope of all of humanity. So we're going to see that as we move through it as well. So again, five-fold framework for understanding the large story of Scripture and in each one of them, we'll see the way that Jesus fills out that story. It's a way to help us make sense of this story that we're a part of. Uh, A little homework assignment I want to give to each of you. Okay, Uh, I want your help And coming up with an image or an analogy for how we can see these five covenants through Scripture. Based on how you view the world. Okay, so if you're a a history nerd, I I happen to be one of those as well. I'm just confessing all of my nerdness today, okay? Uh, Then maybe you see this automatically, like in your mind, suddenly you see a timeline and you're like okay I can see the progression of this and these are the major key events and then there are a lot of other significant events but they tend to fall under these headings of the story so you see a timeline get laid out in front of you. Uh, Maybe you're an artist and instead you see like a mosaic and so you see these core pieces that are all different and they're all beautiful in their own way yet when they come together They form this larger, beautiful picture. Maybe there are five large pieces and then a bunch of smaller pieces that fall in with that to form this larger picture of the story of Jesus to make sense of it that way. Maybe if you're a writer or a filmmaker, you see a storyboard get laid out and then the smaller themes and pieces of the story fall into place around that. If you're a cook, maybe you see ingredients... Right? And you recognize the importance of that, and there might be some smaller pieces in there, but these are the five core ingredients that have to be there to make that final picture. A, mu- a musician, maybe you see the instruments and the different parts that they play. I want to give you that homework. For you out of your life, what is your analogy for understanding this? I'd love to have you text me that or email me that, okay? Awesome. Alright, so we're moving now into the first covenant that we're going to look at together. uh, And it's found in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Then we're going to skip forward to verses 26 and 27 together. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I mean chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, 26 through 27. And this is the story of creation. Uh, Genesis is a word that means beginnings. And so it's taken right from those first three words that we're going to hear here at the beginning of the Scriptures. In the beginning. Jesus, bless the reading of your Word. Bless the hearing of it. Bless the understanding of it. Help us to engage with it. And not just to get it on a level of knowledge and understanding, but on a level of life transformation. We pray that you would plant it down in us. So that the fruit of it grows out in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So here at the beginning, we get this image of what many biblical scholars have called an image of chaos that is brought into creation. So from chaos to creation, as God begins to move at the dawn of our story, and out of the overflow of the holy love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, creation is moving out of Him, is overflowing out of Him as He speaks it into existence so we get this picture of chaos that moves into creation the the spirit hovering over the waters the the face of the deep is saying darkness and void and empty and out of this the beauty of creation is drawn and it tells this creation story and maybe in your version you can see this uh A lot of scholars have trouble nailing down what actual genre of literature this is. We really don't know. We can't say exactly what genre of ancient literature this is, but we know that it is poetic in nature. And so for many of you, Genesis chapter 1 in your Bibles, uh, it's formatted slightly differently than most of chapter 2. And when you get to chapter 2, you can see that the paragraph is laid out a little bit differently. And you can see that chapter 1 is formatted in this poet, poetic kind of fashion. And so the poem rolls out and it talks about God creating. God separates the day from the night. God separates uh, the, the sky and the earth. God separates the land and the sea. And then in the next round of creation, God begins to fill all of those things. And we can see the poetic playing back and forth here of the separation of things and then the filling of things by God. Until we get to day 6. And this beautiful moment in day 6 when it says that God creates humanity. And here's how it says that in verse 26. Then God said, 'Let, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humanity in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And so we see this beautiful moment in the creation story after God moves through this of the separating and then the filling and then the crown of creation, we're told. In this moment in chapter 6, where this wording of, we're created in the image of God. Humanity is created in the image of God. As the story goes along, with everything that God creates, He speaks a blessing over it and it says, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Everything that He's creating. But humanity is set apart and over us He speaks the blessing of very good. And when we are created in His image, He says, and God saw that it was very good. And so this crown of creation, and right here from the beginning we see established a partnership. And we're invited into this covenant partnership with God. And humanity is set apart as a representative to all of creation. There's this imagery here of humanity ruling over the rest of creation. And does that bother anybody else when you read that? A little bit. bothers me. Okay, I don't like that language of ruling. And in other translations it talks about dominion over. But here's the reality of that. We are brought into this partnership with God and He empowers us to be the rulers over creation, but in the same kind of way that He would rule. That we are stewards over what He has created. It doesn't belong to us, it belongs to Him. And we are stewards over His creation. We instinctively know what a good ruler is like. And we instinctively know the difference between a good ruler and a tyrant. Someone who rules just for their own good and doesn't care what happens to what is around them or underneath them. And God sets us up as stewards of His creation to rule on His behalf, but out of His same heart in the way that He would rule. So our original commission is to be gardeners. It's to be those who cultivate God's creation and to partner with Him in the flourishing of all of creation. And so, just as a quick side note, Christians should be at the front of the line when we're talking about caring for our environment. For some reason, we're often broken down and it seems like Major sections of those who call themselves Christians act like they don't care. And act like it doesn't matter. And they mock the science. Mock environmental science. And the the idea of creation care. That does not fit in any way with Christianity. And right from the very beginning of this book. Right from the dawn of the whole thing. We're called to be stewards of creation and to care for it in the same way that God would, His good creation, and to operate in that kind of way with that relationship as a representative of God towards His creation. As Christians, we should be at the front of the line in caring about environmental issues and caring about God's good creation in this world. So this is the partnership that we get set up in here and that we get brought into. Another thing that tends to happen with us is for some reason uh, Christians want to uh, devolve here into a debate about scientific theories. And we want to use this passage to engage in uh, debate about scientific theories. But that's not what this passage is designed to do. That's not the kind of literature we're dealing with here. Okay, it's not, um, it's not setting us up to have arguments about science on that front, okay, and about the arguments about evolution or anything else that you want to talk about. That's not what this passage is telling us. It's telling us a different kind of story. And I'm, I'm just telling you, we have to let the Bible be the Bible. We have to not try to make it say what we want it to say. And we have to realize that there's not a division and there's not a battle between science and faith. Oftentimes people want to set up that division and set up that battle. That, that battle does not exist in what we're seeing here and in the way that God engages with the world. All truth is His truth and you don't have to choose between belief or reason you don't have to choose between science or faith they inform each other they're both from him and they inform each other because of that so too often we get caught up in debates that that don't belong here this story is designed to give us a framework for bigger questions if you're asking the wrong questions you will never get to the right answer so we have to ask the right questions Of this passage and the bigger questions that are getting asked here is who are we as humans what does it mean to be a human what is our design as humanity in God's good world why are we here who is God how do we relate to him how does he relate to us why is it that in his good world We can look around and we can see undeniable beauty and goodness in one moment. And then we can see unthinkable brokenness in the next. These are the kinds of questions that this passage engages and opens up in us. The nature of human brokenness. It asks us about not just the brokenness of humanity, but then how do we also make sense of humanity's capacity for flourishing? and advancing creativity in the world? How do we make sense of the hurt that we can cause and yet the healing that we can be a part of at the same time? Why is it that we instinctively long for meaningful relationships with other people and we so often fracture those same relationships with our actions? Why is it that there's this ache in us for meaning, for belonging, for beauty, for justice, for transcendence. These are the questions that get raised by this passage. And these are the questions that get answered by this passage as well. The nature of a holy and loving God and how to live in union with Him. That is what this is about. It gives us an origin story, absolutely. And it also gives us an identity. And a sense of who we are in Him. And it invites us into that larger story. Our Jewish brothers and sisters this past week celebrated Rosh Hashanah. Which is uh, the celebration of the Jewish New Year. And in that celebration, it is about this passage right here. It's about God's good creation. God's creative work. How He brought all this into being. And what our part is in that. And it's a time to pause and to remember and to reflect on that. Our origin and our identity in our relationship with Him. And we see both play out in this passage. But unfortunately, as we move through this creation narrative in chapters one and two, And we see the beauty of what it looks like to be created in the image of God and set in this world as his partners and representatives to represent him to this world. Unfortunately, what comes in Genesis chapter 3 is what's known as the fall. And humanity falls into sin. Union with God was not enough for us We gave in to a temptation for equality with God. And we tried to grasp for something that did not belong to us. And when we did, we fell into sin. And we dragged all of the rest of creation down with us. And now everywhere we look, we see the fractures of the fall making their way all the way into our everyday lives here and now points to the brokenness of the world that we live in. It points to our own brokenness as well. We're called into a covenant of partnership and to be a representative and we failed. We failed in that. And sin enters into the picture and brings all of his friends along with him. Death and injustice and brokenness and sickness And all of it comes in at that moment. And we are living with that reality every single day. But God refused to give up on His creation. And even in that moment of our failure, He makes a promise that He will renew and He will restore. And that there is hope. And even in that moment, we can see the echoes of His grace already from the very beginning beginning as we follow through the story a little bit more we're going to hit that next covenant I'll I'll try to move quicker through this second one okay I promise Uh, but as we move through we go from Genesis chapter 3 and the entrance of sin into the world and the brokenness of our relationship with God and relationship with each other and this painful scene of that brokenness this devastating scene and then immediately we already begin to see the results of that By the time we get to Genesis chapter 4, we see the second generation of humanity, Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain kills his own brother. And the first murder that we find here in the story of humanity that we're getting told through the book of Genesis is one brother killing another. It's heartbreaking. It's gut-wrenching. And then we watch the progress continue. We watch it just continue to fall apart until we get to Genesis chapter 6. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we get this unthinkable statement. It says this, The Lord saw how great humanity's wickedness on the earth had become. And that, listen to this, that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil all the time. Every inclination only evil all the time. That is how far we had fallen and how far the failure was reaching. We took the good creation that we were called to partner in and to be a part of its cultivation and flourishing And instead, we were a part of its destruction as we're destroying each other. And it gives a description of a culture of utter violence, disregard for life completely. And such a human brokenness that God decides He must begin again. And God says that He will send a flood He finds in Noah another representative who will be like another Adam and he says, I will start over with Noah. And he sends a flood to destroy creation. This is gut-wrenching. This is so heartbreaking. Think again about what we read in Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 where it gives this description of in the beginning. There's this chaos and the deep and the waters and it starts talking about God separating out the waters into land and separating the sky and the land and, and, and separating this and taking what was chaos and moving it into creation. But the story of Genesis chapter 6 reverses that and what was creation falls into chaos and the waters that had been separated now again cover over everything and its creation coming undone because of the depth of the brokenness of the world genesis 1 is chaos to creation genesis 6 is creation in to chaos but again god initiates a partnership with a representative noah to represent Him to the world and to begin again. Can I stop here for just a minute and ask, do you feel the tension of that story? Does that story bother you? I hope so. If that story doesn't bother you, we we need to talk. That story breaks our hearts because of the sense of compassion that's been placed down within us. It breaks... Our hearts. It's a gut-wrenching story. We should feel the tension of that. We should feel the tension of that. And in that tension we come to realize that God is a God of justice. And we do realize that when we see brokenness out of control, when we see violence out of control, when we see people who are hurting other people, We want someone to step in and put a stop to it. We have this innate compassion because we're created in the image of God that our heart breaks for this kind of story and at the same time our heart breaks with God over the vast injustice that was taking place in the world at the time. This sense of only evil all the time. And we say someone must do something And so when we watch the news and we see what is happening in other countries and and things that are falling apart, we say somebody's got to step in and do something. Or right here in our own lives, when we see story after story of injustice, we say someone's got to do something. I don't know what to do but the system is broken and it's got to change. So I'll do the only thing I can do, I'll take to the street and I'll raise my voice and demand that somebody steps in and does something. Something's got to change, the system is broken. And we often have different ideas for how to restore that and how to redeem that and sometimes. We'll say, the whole thing needs to be brought back down to its foundations and start over. So yes, there's tension, and I acknowledge that, and we're not going to fully resolve that tension today. And I can't fully explain in a satisfactory way all of this, other than the fact that we know that this God of compassion is a God of justice. And there are moments in human history when He steps in. Just like we long for someone to step in and put a stop to the brokenness. There are moments in human history when he does just that. And this is one of those moments. There is tension in our faith and that's a good thing. We have to learn to live with that tension. Oftentimes, we want to resolve the tension, but in doing that, we remove the mystery and we need to be able to live in the tension that's where the mystery is it's like our friends who are leading worship for us and the guitars we've used this image a couple times before the guitars the the strings in the guitar there's tension there and that's where the music is coming from that's where the song is and so if you remove the tension you can do that but you lose the song in the process The same is often true with this massive, deep, vast faith and story that we are in. There will always be points of tension. Don't walk away from the tension. Don't try to resolve the tension and remove the mystery. Instead, keep walking in it. When Jesus invites his first disciples into a discipleship relationship, he doesn't ask them a series of questions that he wants them to answer fully, completely, and correctly. That's not what this faith is about. It's not being able to answer every one of life's most difficult questions. The invitation was, come follow me. And the implication of that is this is going to be a lifelong journey. Stay with me. Some of those questions are going to get answered. You're also going to start asking questions you haven't ever thought to ask before. Keep walking with me. That's the invitation here to keep moving into that tension. What we have here is a picture of a God who is holy and a God who is love at the same time. For most people, if you. Write that sentence out, God is, and you draw a blank and you put a period at the end and you say, put one word there. A lot of people would answer with one of those two words God is holy or God is love. And the truth is, God is both. That is his nature. He is holy love. And because God is holy, sin must be judged. He does judge sin. Because God is holy, he judges sin. But because God is love, he provides a rescue. And that's what he does in this moment with Noah. It's not just for him. It's not just to him, but it's through him. And Noah sends out that warning as well. And that reality of what is coming. And opens that door. And that's what it means to be a partner and representative in this covenant with God. God is holy and God is love. And He is both at the same time. Yes, sin is judged but God always provides a rescue. God is holy. We could never make our way to Him. God is love. He comes to us and makes the way to us and invites us into that relationship. What we see in Genesis chapter 9 is that at the end of that flood, God makes another covenant with Noah. God said to Noah and his sons, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all of life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Many scholars have pointed out that that image of the rainbow, if you think about the image of a rainbow in your mind, that to the ancient reader, to the ancient mind, they would have seen the way that represented a peace treaty. That oftentimes the an archer's bow, which had been a weapon, was held out so that the bow would be shaped like that, held out sideways instead of pointed towards the other, and held out in that way, forming what looks like a rainbow and this symbol that God gives to His people, this symbol of healing and beginning again. Other writers have pointed out that it actually points ahead to the death of Jesus himself. And the reality that now that archer's bow is not pointed in this direction, but instead it's pointed directly up into the heart of heaven. And in the person of Jesus, we, feel, we see the fulfillment of both of these covenants. As he comes to fulfill them in ways that Adam and Eve could not, as He comes to fulfill them in ways that Noah could not. And in the creation of chapter 1, even though we see that that's broken by sin, which leads to the coming apart of creation in chapter 6, even in that heartache, we can already see the pointing ahead to the grace of Jesus, that He becomes that fulfillment. And what went wrong in the garden will be set right in Jesus. He is the new creation story. It's why the Gospel of John begins with the same three words as the book of Genesis begins. In the beginning. So John is saying, this is the new creation story. And where that first Adam failed, the final Adam will be faithful. And what went wrong in the garden will be set right through Jesus. He becomes the representative that we could never be. And in that same sense of what we see in the flood story, that God is holy, love, sin must be judged, but God provides a rescue in a mind-blowing move. We see that God does judge sin, but He takes that judgment on Himself in the cross of Jesus. And we see His holiness as He judges sin by taking that judgment upon Himself. The judge who steps down and takes the punishment Himself, takes the judgment on Himself. And we see His love as He provides A rescue for us, so driven by his love for us that he would lay down his own life. The bow pointed upwards towards the heart of heaven. God taking the judgment on himself because of the depth of his love for us. The most heartbreaking scene of God's judgment in the scriptures is not in the Old Testament it's not in the story of the flood or any other story that we see. The most heartbreaking scene of God's judgment is the cross. When Jesus, God himself, takes the judgment on himself, out of his love for us. These are the first two covenants. We can see the way that Jesus fulfills these and is faithful in every way that we failed as Jesus himself becomes the new covenant. He is holy love. He takes the judgment on himself. He provides a rescue for us through his own sacrificial and love-fueled sacrificial death on the cross. We're going to share in that together as Justin's going to come and lead us in communion and this is what this time represents is the death of Jesus for us Jesus taking the judgment on himself willingly giving himself for us out of the depth of his love so that we could be in relationship with God faithful at every point where we failed. Amen.